0: Thank you, Mark, for leading us. Good evening. It's so great to be with you all tonight. Thank you for coming back for our round two of this, this Sunday morning. I was originally scheduled to do the latter half of First uh, Timothy chapter five. And our schedule got off just a little bit. And so tonight I'm going to try to cover the entire chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 5 so that you all can get back on schedule uh, at the upcoming uh, Sunday night as uh, I believe maybe Joe is preaching 1 Timothy chapter 6, the beginning of that. So I say that to say, hang on. We're going to go through this together. We're going to go through parts of it quickly. Parts of it will stop and dwell. Uh, So you need to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to speak to us in a powerful way. Father, we give you glory, we give you allegiance. Lord, you are magnificent. Lord, I'm still thinking about this morning when we discussed what it's like for us to lay ourselves at your feet and ask you to cover us. Lord, thank you for doing that in our lives. And Lord, tonight we want to honor you by the preaching of your word, the studying of your word, and the application of it. Lord, speak through me. Help me to be your messenger to communicate your message to your people for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I appreciate Mark's kind words earlier. I just want to be honest, it has been such an honor to serve as your interim pastor uh, during this time. I'm going to miss you dearly after next week, but excited for your future and what what lies ahead. But it is indeed an an honor. And as we dive into 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see this word honor mentioned several times. It's really a a chapter of honor. And so we're going to frame our points around that idea of different people we honor In the church and in our world. First thing we see is this that Paul is telling Timothy to honor those in the church. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. It's asking the question how do we treat older people in society? How do we treat older people in the church? And Paul calls upon Timothy to treat older men and older women with respect. Because of experience, because of wisdom, there's a lot that Timothy can learn from them. A young pastor like Timothy would serve well by faithfully listening to the wisdom of those older than him. I want you to know that the older we get, the Bible has a lot of great things to say about Those of us who are older, those of you who are older, who are my uh, elders. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, it says this. It says, you rise, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, it says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Can I get some amens? You know, my crown of glory is becoming more evident every single day. My kids have given me a lot of great things, and uh, an ever-developing crown of glory is one of those. Um, Basically, Paul is saying to Timothy, let's not be this young buck who says older people's opinions don't matter. You know, sometimes in the church, we can have that reaction, can't we? And so we need to make sure that we who are called God's people are people that heed the advice and wisdom of those who are older than us. Here's He takes each group together. He says, older men, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. This is not the normal Greek verb for the word rebuke. Um, the, the normal word, we'll see it used other places by Paul, but this is a different word. It really means to strike at. And so what Paul is saying is don't strike at an older man, that you're not to attack an older man with your words, but to treat him with respect. The, the command is not that Timothy should never rebuke an older man because we see in the same chapter, we're going to get to it, verse 20 of this very same chapter, Paul tells Timothy to rebuke some elders in the church. And so he's never saying, never call them uh, to, to question, never, never uh, bring a dispute before them. He's saying that when you do it, You always treat older people with respect and care and not lash out in harshness. It's how we talk to them and how we talk about them. So my probably second week here, I had the joy of going out to lunch with with the Rudy's. Uh, Heather and, and, and Matt and and I got to go out with the Yarboroughs were, were there and I uh, got to meet the Rudy children and the Yarboroughs children and just ha- had a great time with them and uh, I was particularly I was sitting near uh, Alec and and uh, um, he would kept calling me sir and I feel like I wasn't old enough to be a sir. You know, I feel like there's a certain age, but he's probably looking at me and thinking, yeah, he's got a lot of gray hair. I need to call him, him, sir. And so at first I was kind of like, oh, I don't know that I really like being called a sir. But then after that, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the show of respect uh, that, that he was showing. And I think Alex watching, Alex, you can call me sir anytime you like. You don't need to. But here's what, here's what I learned: there was a respect that he showed to someone older than him that Ashton and Lexi show as well because their parents, Matt and Heather, have done a wonderful job teaching their children to show respect for those who are older than them. And that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. When you are relating with folks who are your senior saints who have been on this earth um, twice as long as you've been alive, Timothy, you need to respect them. You need to listen to them. About older women, he says this. These are to be treated as mothers. He says older women as mothers. That a young pastor must accept and appreciate that he's going to receive some mothering from, a women, from women in his church. That sometimes they're going to encourage him like a mom would and sometimes they're going to maybe uh, direct him like a mom would. Timothy was a young pastor in the church and Paul's saying treat the older women in your church like you would your mother. Love them like you would your mother. I remember when I was a pastor, uh, you know, there were some times when people would want to talk with me and maybe they didn't like something that the church did. And I always had to picture um, that person like it was my mom. How would I talk to my mom in this situation? And that's the way Paul is telling Timothy to address women in the church younger men as brothers. And younger women as sisters. Those of you who have brothers know exactly what Paul's talking about here. You treat him like you would your brothers, you know. You can be direct with your brothers, but you're all working together for one great thing. And when you talk about your sisters, when you talk about your sisters, you understand you're there to protect your sisters. You care for your sisters. You should be polite with, with your sisters. Paul is telling Timothy always to make certain that your conduct toward younger women is pure and above reproach. That a godly pastor is not flirtatious or provocative. And I, I remember my son and my family we were having this discussion about one of them, uh, this girl at the school, uh, her boyfriend wasn't treating her like really well, and I asked my son, I said, "What would you do if a guy was treating your sisters like that?" He says, "Oh, he wouldn't treat them like that very long." <laughs> That's what he said. There's this defensiveness that ...you take for your younger sister, right? If you're a guy. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Treat women your age like they're your sister. So there we go. Honoring uh, people in the church. The second section we see here begins in verse 3. And I'm going to read. It's a rather lengthy section. I would normally not do this, but we're going to kind of cover all this section. I'm going to give you two points that come out of verses 3 through 16. Here's what it says. Honor widows who are truly widows... Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied his faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up her children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they, uh, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry. Bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so it may not care for those so that may care for those who are truly widows. So the two things he says in this passage, lots of things, but two main things. First of all, Paul is telling Timothy, honor widows. So we talk about first honoring those in the church, honoring older men, older women, uh, younger men, younger women. Now he's saying honor widows. In the day that the Old Testament was written, the New Testament was written, rather, as you know, there was no social security. There was no social assistance program. It was the role of the church, the responsibility of the church and, and particularly the deacons of the church to help care for the widows who are truly widows. What does he mean by widows who are truly widows? widows well you see here in the passage he describes those he, he says those who have no husband obviously to be a widow that they have no grown children uh, who can care for them they have no family who are grown and an adult who can care for them that's a true widow and he gives some other parameters saying to be added to the list of widows and then you be over the age of 60 And this word honor in verse 3, honor widows, is a word meaning financially support. That's how you honor the widows. It's not a, hey, Mother's Day, we're going to have you stand up and give you a flower. It's not that type of honor. It's an honor meaning we're going to provide. We're going to sustain with some substantial financial commitment. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers Day and night. The passage reveals that a real widow is one who is left alone. No children, no nephews, no relatives that can care for them. And you remember in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Pure religion that God our Father considers faultless is this, those who look after orphans and widows in their time of need. And Paul is telling Timothy the same thing, that the mark of a believing Christian is to care for widows. He gives some criteria on who should be put on the list. He says, first of all, that if they, are, if they have families, that that is the children's obligation, that that person's not to be put on the list. And secondly, if the widow is young, it's best for her to remarry than for her to be put on the list. He's saying we need to really care for the widows who are true widows. And if we, we can't care for all the widows, um, if we try to care for all the widows, we can't care for the ones who need it the most. Does that make sense? And the idea here is that someone under the age of 60 could still support themselves or they could get remarried, that they don't need to be added to the list. Here in verse 11, he makes this interesting comment where he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Um, and then he goes to talk about how, what can happen b- b- because of that. You know, it could be that a likely a younger lady has lost her husband and she's so grief stricken that she commits, I'm never going to marry again. And she almost becomes, makes this commitment to the church, almost like a, a nun would make this commitment. I'm going to serve the church faithfully as a widow. And she's, you know, 38 years old and she's serving the church and she's on the list being provided for, care for the church. And, and Paul's saying that, that that lady, maybe three years later, sitting in church singing a great song, and she glances over and there's this tall, handsome, slender guy her age sitting in the pew across from her. And he asked her out for coffee. And then she falls in love and gets married. And this commitment she made three years ago to only love Jesus, only follow Jesus, be married to Jesus, she's now left that, that, that commitment to follow this man. At least that's what Alistair Begg believes that this is, is speaking about. So it's not that she's lost her faith by remarrying because Paul encourages her to remarry He talks about this idea that also with younger widows. Now, let me just say, Paul says this, not me, so let me clarify that. He says there can be this issue if we're putting young widows on the list. And here's the idea. For the widow to receive uh, the allotment, likely she had a job in the church. And some of the widow's job was praying for the church. That's what it talks about, prayers day and night. So let's say the young widow is put on the the, uh, being supplied financial compensation by the church, being cared for for by the church. Paul's saying that those type of ladies who aren't working a job can become busybodies, idlers, what's he say there, slanderers, gossips, going from house to house. Now, I didn't say that. Let me just be very clear. Paul's (laughs) the one that says that, but you can see why that could be an issue, right? Uh, Uh, a person whether man or woman if they are idle with their time the things that can happen so here's what paul's saying in the church we're to honor widows the third thing he's saying in this same passage is we're to honor our parents honor our parents look there verses four and eight but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here's what Paul is saying. If in the church your mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather becomes widowed and needs help, it's the primary responsibility of you, the family member, to care for that widow. He's placing it on the family. It's not the church's chief concern. It's your chief concern. That honoring your father and mother does not end at the age of 18. That it's a lifelong commandment. Now, some of you had wonderful childhoods like I did. Some of you had pretty poor childhoods. And for some of you, honoring your parents sounds challenging as they're adults. And others of us, it's maybe more easy because of the way our parents treat us. I have just these wonderful images of my parents. You know, my dad, he was that guy that out in the yard throwing baseball all the time, coaching all my teams. Um, You know, when we were first married, he was always at the house helping us fix things, getting a new house ready. Just wonderful, godly man. And I want to honor him as he gets older and, and seek to care for him and however he wants. And my mom, she's just the sweetest, most patient person. She's the one that led me to Christ when I was age 11. She prayed with me to receive Jesus. And, and my mom used to give me dance lessons. Um, it was so sweet. She would take my hand. I'd be facing this way. Or she'd be facing this way and I'd be facing the other way. And we would start turning around in circles and she pulled up that fly swatter and started doing this the whole time, and I was just jumping, just jumping. It was just something. Every time I got in trouble, we had dance lessons. I don't know what that was really about, but uh, um, have you ever used a fly swatter on your children? That was my mom's weapon of choice on those days. Every time I disappointed her, we went dancing. But the point is that With my parents, I love them and I owe it to them to help care for them in whatever capacity that means as they get older. You know, Paul is saying that that's our calling, and some of you are doing that right now. Some of you have done that not long ago. I recall watching my parents drive to my grandparents uh, every other weekend to take care of my 102 year old grandfather. My wife's mom would drive to Tennessee, a three-hour drive um, every week, and she would spend two or three days a week at her mother's house to take care of her. And that's been modeled for us in our life. Some of you are doing very similar things. You're putting other things on hold. You're sacrificing to care for aging parents or you have in the past. And the Lord says you need to be praised for that, that that's what God calls us to do in honoring our parents. You know, the Pharisees were bad at this. The Pharisees said that they could not, in Matthew 15, that they could not provide for their parents financially because they claimed they were giving all their money to God. And Jesus said that that's just ridiculous, that they were forsaking caring for their parents because they wanted to be recognized for this financial support of the church. You know, And it's easy for us right now to talk about children. It's the responsibility of the children to care for the parents. But there's a second responsibility. It's a responsibility on behalf of the parents to teach children to honor their parents. That's a responsibility that parents have for those of you who are younger parents in here. Parents, it's a responsibility to teach. It's your responsibility to teach your children to honor you when they are small. How are children taught what it means to honor God? Because they've learned to honor mom and dad. How, they been, how are children taught what it means to listen to God and obey God? It's because they've been taught to listen and obey mom and dad. From a very early age, they're taught to honor someone and respect their authority. And so the honor we give to our parents is to be an example of the honor that we give uh, to God. And, you know, we've seen it all throughout society how parents sometimes drop the ball on teaching children to honor them. I've struggled with it, but you see something like you're in the grocery store and you go down the cereal aisle and you've got some young dad there in the cart and he's got princess in the cart and he's pushing her chariot down the the cereal aisle and picking out cereal oh princess what cereal do you want and he's like well, how about some uh, um how about some uh uh, cornflakes oh i 'm not eating cornflakes oh i 'm sorry princess i 'm sorry, I thought you liked corn what about what about Cheerios you know i don 't like Cheerios. Well, I just wanted to stay away from those sugary cereals. Let's get, let's get you something else you like. What about Frosted Flakes? You know I don't like Frosted Flakes. Well, you liked Frosted Flakes last week, so I thought you'd like Frosted Flakes this week, but no, we won't get Frosted Flakes. What would you like? What about, what about Lucky Charms, the double marshmallow ones? Yes, the double marshmallows. Would you like that? Give me two boxes, Princess says. And Dad throws them in the box and he pushes it down. And the, he shop, the kids are basically shopping at, at that point. And Dad's not able. Now, there's nothing wrong with your kids picking out the cereal. That's not what I'm saying. But some of us live our lives dictated by our children. Have you seen that? And it's a great problem because here's the problem. Fifteen years later, princess is going to be driving her own chariot. And while dad's laying his head down on the pillow at night, she's going to be driving her own chariot looking for whatever will satisfy her desire. And I guarantee you it won't be cereal this time. We need to teach our children to honor their parents. We have the responsibility of teaching children to respect their parents, and then children have the responsibility of caring. For the parents, and in the United States, we do a pretty horrible job of this. When you rank nationwide or rank worldwide, uh, the World Health Organization ranks the U.S. at or near the very bottom of families' care for the elderly. In France, also, they rank very low. In 2004, they had to pass the elderly rights law after the publication of the statistics re- showing that France had the highest suicide rate of retirees in, in all of Europe. But in the Asian cultures, it's completely different. The Confucianism tradition places this high value on the tradition of caring for your parents. One writes, it's considered utterly despicable not to care for your elderly parents in Confucianism. A new elderly rights law was passed in China that warns children not to neglect or snub elderly people and mandates they visit their parents often regardless of how far away they live. The law includes enforcement mechanisms too that offspring who fail to care for their parents can face potential punishment ranging from fines to jail time. In Korea, where they celebrate the 60th and 70th birthday are like the hallmark celebration in the life surrounded by feasts. The universal expectation is that once roles reverse and the parents are not taking care of the children, but rather the children are taking care of the parents, that it's an honorable position to care for your parents. And so our culture is a joke to the Asian peoples. When they see the way that our children treat their parents... When you see the way that teenagers speak to mom and dad, when they see the way that uh, that the, the grown man doesn't care for his mom, or the, the grown woman is not willing to care for, for her dad, they laugh. It's something wrong when people in other cultures who are without the Bible are better at dealing with the long-term care of elderly people than we with the Bible have, and we have the commands of Christ. But who would be surprised? If we're not teaching children to honor their parents the first 10 years of the child's life, what makes us think that children are going to honor their parents in the last 10 years of their parents' life? The Bible says families take care of their widowed parents. So we honor those in the church, honor older men, or honor older women. We honor widows. Paul says we honor our parents. Fourth, he says we honor ministers. We honor ministers. Look there at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. There's two ways Paul talks about honoring ministers here. The first way is in compensation. Compensation. Remember he says, remember when he talks about the widows, he said that we're to honor widows. Look in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. What did that mean? That means support them financially, not give them accolades. You can give them accolades, but what he meant by honor is giving them financial support. Well, here when it comes to ministers, he says, how should we honor elders, vocational ministers in our church? He says we should give them double honor. If we're going to give the widows financial support, we should give the ministers double financial support. We should make sure that they are financially supported. They're worthy of double honor. He speaks about elders who rule in the church, elders who preach and teach. He doesn't say you have to be preaching and teaching. He just says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And this word labor there is important because every minister's heard the joke. I'm sure Patrick, you've heard it, and Mark, you've heard it, and Joe, you've heard it. It must be nice just to work one day a week. you know? And you kind of grin and laugh, and then you walk away thinking, they have no idea what I do each week. Because ministry can be laborious. Paul uses words like labor, toil, work. Throughout his epistles, he talks about um, the great work. I see Kenny back there. You think last week Kenny would just sit in his office drinking Starbucks when he had the night of praise coming up? No, he's going crazy. He and Mark and Brandon getting things together. It's work. And Paul is saying that ministry is work. Now, let me say, there are some people who... Lazy people can hide in ministry. There are some lazy ministers out there. But by and large, especially the ministers on your staff, are people who work, they labor in leading, in preaching, and teaching. You know, some people think, you know, we shouldn't pay ministers. They should, you know, Paul was a tent maker. And and that's a wonderful, picturesque ideal. And Paul was planting churches, and so the church didn't have a, a, a large group of people who could give him. He's receiving financial support from Jerusalem. Remember that? He's receiving financial support from Philippi to help him on his missionary journey. And as a, a journeyman, as he's traveling around planting churches, he chooses to work as a tent maker So, because the church is still in its infancy. But that's not the model we see throughout the entire Scripture. In fact, this illustration that we're given here in, let's see what verse is this, verse 18 For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What in the world does that mean? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Paul is referring to that passage where he says basically the same thing. Um, God tells Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. What would happen is when they were treading out the grain, when they were crushing the grain to compact it down into um, flour or things that were were edible, uh, the cornmeal or, or whatever... They would have the ox. You can picture this. You've seen this in in shows, like a big, maybe a wheel in the middle, and the ox is on a, a, there's a pole sticking out, and he's harnessed to that, and the ox is just walking around in circles, just walking, walking like me at the mall when my wife's shopping. I just feel like I'm walking around in circles. And some people would rent an ox. You'd borrow an ox, and you didn't want that ox eating your, the the fruit of his labor. You don't want him eating the the grain that was on the ground, so they put a muzzle on him. So anytime the ox went down to try to eat some of it, he could not. But God told Moses, no, we're not going to be that type of people. We're going to give people some fruits of their labor, even the animal. And so he said, don't muzzle the ox. If the ox is doing the work, let him stop whenever he wants and eat some of the grain on the ground. Make him strong, helping, shows that we're not greedy, and he's enjoying some of the fruits of his labor. And what he's saying here about ministers is they are to receive some of the fruits of the work they're doing. And so some of the offerings that come to a church are used to support the minister's of the church. This was true in the Old Testament as well. When they brought sacrifices to the temple, a portion of that was apportioned over for, to be given to the priests. So the priests were cared for so that they could devote themselves to caring for the people. How can our ministers truly devote themselves to leading and preaching and teaching if they are also having to work other jobs? And let me tell you, there are some amazing bivocational pastors out there. I mean, absolutely amazing. And they're my ministry heroes. Because they are working 40 or 50 hours a week in their job. They're teaching in a school. They're working in a factory. They're uh, uh, working at a bank, whatever it may be. And yet they're also helping to lead a church. And many of them will tell you how challenging that is. And they're my ministry heroes. But in many cases, when the church is able to, Paul is saying to help support your church. Let them have some of the fruits of the labor. The second thing he speaks to about ministers here is accusation. So, first is compensation. Second is accusation. Look there. What verse was that? Um, verse nineteen and twenty. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest. So they so that the rest may stand in fear. Here's what he's saying: that sometimes in ministry. Um, people can get upset with you. And I'm sure that's never happened here, but that can happen. You know, you have relationships and someone gets upset with a minister. And so what if someone came forward and said, I accuse the the pastor, I accuse the youth pastor, I accuse someone of doing something. And what Paul is saying, let's give the minister the benefit of the doubt. And if just one person comes forward and accuses, and there's certain occasions, maybe with sexual accusation, that I would think we take the one accuser's word. But generally what Paul is saying is, let there be two or three people who bring an accusation. And then he says this, if two or three people bring an accusation, you need to act promptly. If two or three people bring an accusation against an elder, against a leader, against a minister in a church, he he says... This, he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. Paul is striking a balance here that ministers are not above reproach. And if a minister or a leader or a deacon or, or a church leader is in sin, then that needs to be dealt with swiftly, promptly, appropriately, and he even says publicly. Now that's painful. Because we need to be a warning to all People, leaders in the church, this is not how we behave. There's a book called Dangerous Calling. Some of my minister friends in here may have read it before. It's a book by Tripp talking about how we lead our lives as ministers. In the first edition of the book, I have it. I meant to bring it to show it to you. But on the back, it's got endorsements from five leaders. And within about two years, three of those leaders who have quotes were all out of ministry because of moral failings. These are folks who were put on the pedestal as encouraging others to live a life of integrity. But now they're out of ministry. So as deacons, elders, ministers, we're not above reproach. And when an elder or deacon or minister commits a grave sin... When there's a pattern of abusiveness, when there's a pattern of neglect, whatever the pattern may be, Paul is saying to deal with it swiftly. You know, many congregations have great trouble because sin and leadership is not dealt with forthrightly. Perhaps you've been in a church like that. That... Sometimes those in leadership in a church, whether it's vocational or a lay leader, are shielded because they're afraid of what it would do to the church. What if the community found out about this? And so we keep it quiet. But as painful as it sounds, not, that's not the approach that Paul has here. We're to deal with it. Deal with it swiftly. Deal with it publicly. The fifth thing that Paul talks about, I think I'm on number five, four or five, is... Honor the Lord. Now, in this section, he's linking it also back to the part about honor ministers. Um, So this kind of runs parallel together. Honor the Lord. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He said, don't be partial. Don't be prejudiced. Don't show favoritism. That, That... That sometimes in the church we can overlook the sins of leaders because we like the person. Like, let's say this example. Let's say that a church would say, we would never allow one of our, if one of our ministers committed adultery, they could not serve as a minister of our church. Or one of our deacons, we cannot let them serve. But they serve for, let's say, 10 years or 12 years. And all of a sudden, people start falling in love with that person. That that wonderful, I love the way he leads the choir. I love the way he's a youth pastor to my children. I love the way he counts. He did the wedding for my daughter. He started growing affinity. And then when an egregious sin happens, Sometimes we show favoritism, churches can, by saying, well, he must be really sorry about that. I mean, I know we said adultery would disqualify him from ministry, but maybe we need to keep him in because he's such a great preacher. The choir loves him. He's so good with kids. Look at the way he deals with kids. Let's just have grace and let him apologize and be forgiven, and we'll just move on. You see, over time, partiality can come into a church so that we are not able to objectively make wise decisions. As soon as sentiment, family ties, or favoritism is allowed to prevail, the church immediately loses the ability to exercise discipline on the basis of objective criteria. Paul's saying, don't be partial. You need to be impartial. You need to be without prejudice. You need to be without favoritism. When you have a leader in the church, whether that's a deacon, a minister, a pastor, whatever it may be, don't overlook moral failings just because you like. In some circles, private sin is tolerated. Get this. This is important. In some circles, private sin is tolerated as long as there are public giftings to compensate. Sometimes we know behind closed doors that a person is a nightmare. But we allow that person to continue because, oh, he's, he's so good with their youth. Have you heard his voice? Oh, he can preach. He can shuck the corn. And because of the public gifting, we allow that to compensate for the private sin. And folks, we just got to be careful that we are people. They're not being partial In fact, he goes on here in verse 22 and continues to speak on this. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. This laying on of hands is obviously setting apart someone for ministry, whether that's maybe serving as a deacon or serving as a minister in the church. And what Paul is telling Timothy, don't do it quickly. Don't be hasty. Don't be in a rush to lay on hands to, uh, to someone surrendering their life to ministry because uh, making someone a deacon or making someone a minister because you need to get to know them, know their character. You need to know um, uh, who they are. Don't be hasty in laying on hands. He's going to deal with this again in verse 24. In fact, if you go to verse 24, it makes a perfect flow. But Paul takes this this, this sidebar in conversation where he's a little distracted and he inserts verse 23. In verse 23, in your Bible, is it in parentheses? How many of you that verse is in parentheses? Yeah, a lot of you, the verse is in parentheses. Verse 23, he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, where in the world did that come from? Paul is writing like a lot of us talk. He's thinking on one subject, then squirrel. He goes the other other way. And here's what he said right here. He says, I charge, let's see what is verse. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And the word pure is on his mind. And so then he wants to tell Timothy something about being pure. It's like like this. Imagine I was telling my wife a story. Hey, I was driving down the road and my car got a flat tire and I pulled over right by the dry cleaner. By the way, your coach ready at the dry cleaner, they said you can pick it up tomorrow. Anyway, I was there and out in the road and it was raining. Triple A couldn't come. It was going to be two hours, so I changed the tire. See, in that story, when I thought about the dry cleaner, I diverted and told her something about the dry cleaner. You've done that before, right? Please tell me I'm not the only crazy person here. And that's what Paul's doing here. He says, keep yourself pure. And then he remembers something about Timothy. That's why it's in parentheses. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. So it's likely here that Timothy was drinking only water. It says here, not likely, he is. No longer drink only water. My guess is, and many commentaries that I read agree with this, that Timothy was probably trying to be above reproach. He knew it was a sin to be drunk. He did not want to be known as a drunker. We see the qualifications and elders in chapter 3 of this very same book. talks about being sober. And Timothy wants to be as far away from a drunkard as he can. So he's dedicated himself. I'm only going to drink water. No one can ever accuse me as as a drunkard if they never see me drinking any wine. And so he's trying to be entirely pure in that situation. And we can respect Timothy for that. No No one could accuse you. Of something, if you never even come close to it, and that's the posture that Timothy has taken. But evidently, during that time, as you can imagine, in the ancient world water was not uh, wasn't pure, and you could get sickness from it. And evidently, drinking only water has caused Timothy to have some stomach pains. Paul says here, for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Now, the wine would have been fermented. It would have killed bacteria and um, would would have killed those parasites that would have been in the water. And so Paul says, occasionally, Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach to heal the ailments in your stomach. Now, a couple things here, two observations. First of all, he says, drink a little. And second of all, it's used for medicinal purposes. Drink a little wine to help soothe your stomach. But we're hard pressed to look at passage, if we when we look at passages like these and many other in the New Testament, we're hard pressed to say that the Bible is condemning alcohol as a beverage. Now let me just say, there are a hundred reasons why I do not drink alcohol. A hundred. I am a teetotaler. My, we don't have alcohol in the house we don't drink alcohol when we go out i'm i don't in my adult life i've never had alcohol and some of you're like well you preach like you do <laughs> it looks like you had two on your way up in here um that's not the case and there's a hundred reasons i think it's a gateway to things i've done too many funerals of people who have died from complications to alcohol I've seen too many families torn apart I don't I have an addictive personality I don't want to you know there's a hundred reasons but I think probably with here with Timothy you're probably thinking well I'm glad he's only got one more week because I don't think Paul is you can't say Paul's condemning alcohol here he tells Timothy drink a little wine And so we just kind of have a proper approach to the usage of alcohol in the church. You know, many of the references around wine in the New Testament, here's the concern, are, are warnings. Most of them are warnings. Most of them are, here's the pain that can happen. And so if we do choose to consume alcohol as a beverage, we must recognize that the Bible has great warnings about doing so, great concerns. And I'm going to recommend you not. But I can't stand here before you and say the Bible says you cannot when Paul says right here to Timothy in this situation he can. So look at verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Actually, let's look at 22 and 24 together. Because Paul inserted that verse 23 just to cause me to sweat during the sermon tonight. Uh, But 22 and 24 really go together, then you see his insertion. So 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that cannot remain hidden. Here's what Paul is saying, verse 22. Don't be quick to lay on hands. Don't be hasty to lay on hands. And here's why, verse 24, because the sins of some people are conspicuous. I Meaning, the sins of some people are apparent. It's obvious. But the sins of others appear later. He's saying that some people, you have to get to know them before you realize their failures. Some people, you don't know until you're around them long enough what they struggle with. And so that's why he says, be hasty about laying on of hands. Because you want to make sure you've had time to observe this person in your church before you commission them for ministry and leadership in the body. And so we come to the close of chapter 5 with Paul giving these words of encouragement. That we're to honor older men and women in the church. That with gray hair comes wisdom and experience that younger people don't have. And we're not, to just, we're not to patronize them, we're to listen to them. Speak respectfully, care with older women as your mother, treat an older man like your father. He says, secondly, we honor widows. That the church should be about caring those who are the most marginalized and um, needy people in the church. Third, he says, honor your parents. That the first responsibility is not the church's responsibility to take care of your parents. It's not the government's responsibility. The first responsibility is the children's responsibility to take care of their parents. Fourth, he says, to honor your ministers. Compensate them for their work. And fifth, ultimately, he says, to honor the Lord. You know, there's a day coming... It talks about in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the angels. Don't go about prejudging. Don't do partiality. He's basically saying this. Treat people, see people's sin for the way it will be seen on the day of judgment. And we personally need to be thinking about that. If everyone were to see my sin, They want me to be a leader in the church. And so tonight, I just want to lead us in a prayer of of repentance and a prayer of asking the Lord to guide us as we seek to honor those who are worthy of honor. Father, we thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. You've departed to us through the Scripture. And Lord, I pray in the name of Christ that you will help us to be people that seek to live pure lives. Lord, we commend Timothy for seeking to be pure in all things, to run away from anything that could lead to sin, Father, but we also recognize the ailment that was causing. Lord, we, we, I pray you will help us to be people who honor and listen to those with more years than we have. Lord, ultimately, we pray that we would honor you. Forgive us of our sins. In the name of Christ we pray.